Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were true crime, history, and the paranormal me. Now who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast. I'm your host, Kat. And I'm Haley. And I'm Tress. And we have Tress back with us. Hi. <laughs> Was that supposed to be a ghost sound, Haley? I realized after that it kind of did, actually. It's not as fun because we're not all in the same room. It would be much better if we were all in the same room. But we're super happy to have Tress back. The story that we're telling you today has a little bit of paranormal in it. So who better to do that than Tress? We're going to jump right back in this week and talk about a true crime in history. It's an old Hollywood story. And if you've been listening for a while, you know it's one of my favorite stories. But really quickly, Haley, can you remind them about our upcoming event? Yeah, don't forget to get your tickets for our ghost walk in the Orange Historic District with historian and author Charles Spratley. The tickets are only $24 each, and we're hearing on the grapevine that Bob Taft, that you've heard in several of our episodes, is going to be joining us too. So come out and meet us for a fun night and a tour. You can buy your tickets at hauntedoc.com. Be sure to choose December 19th. This is Sunday. And the Private Haunting History Tour. The direct link to your the tickets is also on our website and in our Instagram bio. Excellent job, Haley. I think the last time I checked, we're halfway sold out already. And they just went on sale on Thursday. Yeah. So like in 24 hours, half of them are sold out. I'm just going to go ahead and jump in the story because I have a lot to cover. Born on March 24th, 1887, Roscoe Coughlin Arbuckle, better known as Fatty Arbuckle. And side note, I found everywhere that Roscoe's middle name was Conklin, but I did what I always do and looked up all his stuff on Ancestry.com. Me, side note, part two, that you named one of our dogs Arbuckle. Yeah, go ahead. I love <laughs> Roscoe Arbuckle. I love, I've watched his silent movies since I was a little kid, my dad would take us to a pizza parlor where we would watch silent films. And Fatty Arbuckle was one of my favorite characters. So yes, I named my first adult dog, like as an adult, he wasn't an adult. I, as an adult, when I got my first Labrador, I named him Arbuckle. But thanks for destroying my side note. Sorry. <laughs> where was it? Oh, I always do what I do. I go on Ancestry.com and he actually spelled his middle name Coughlin, not Conklin, with no N or G on his passport application. And I love looking stuff up like that. I know it's some people probably think it's weird, but it's really cool to see stuff written in a person's own hand. And it makes them more real when you're talking about them, especially someone born 134 years ago. Like we are talking about someone who was born 134 years ago. Like that's so crazy. We're still talking about him today. It's really easy to find stuff online. There's Facebook pages, there's websites all dedicated to Roscoe Arbuckle. And it seems so crazy to me. I didn't even know that his first name was Roscoe, if I'm being honest. You didn't? No. Because um, someone who took one of Arbuckle's puppies when he had puppies named the puppy Roscoe. Oh, that is a cute dog name. Yeah, you didn't know that? Nope. Yeah, I because mean, I probably did. I was like seven. I don't know. I don't they remember were- they were naming the puppies after the dad and Arbuckle was a dad. So they were, they asked me how I got the name Arbuckle. And I said from Roscoe Arbuckle. 
So they named the puppy Roscoe. Felt like you had a dog named Roscoe too, but that's Rufus. That's (laughs) (laughs) not the same. We didn't name Rufus either. We rescued Rufus and that was his name when he came to us. And he will be with us for a long time. Zombie dog. 21 years old. We decided, we figured out he's 21. He's old. Yeah. He's, he can't see, he can't hear. He just wanders aimlessly. Has no teeth has no tea but he's in here he had to be in here he was scratching at the door to get into the office so i had to let him in so he's laying at my feet while i record all right can we close up side notes now side notes are closed i'll go on i'll continue fatty arbuckle was born to parents mary and william goodrich arbuckle fatty's mom died when he was only 10 or 11 and interesting if you listen to our episode with charles spratley on the orange historic district He mentions Fairhaven Cemetery in Santa Ana that he did tours at. Roscoe Arbuckle's mom is said to be buried there at the Santa Ana Cemetery, which is the Santa Ana Cemetery has its own entrance, but it's basically part of Fairhaven. It's the oldest part of the cemetery. And the office doesn't show records of her being buried there, but they believe that she's buried there next to her young daughter. I wanted to find her cause of death, but I wasn't able to. In the short time I have to research and write, there's so much information to go through, but there are rumors that his birth was one of the things that contributed to her death. I find that kind of hard to believe since she died 10 years after he was born. I mean, it was 1887 and 1897, but she had many kids. But the rumor is that the that his birth is what contributed to her death because he was very large. They say that he was um, 16 pounds at birth. Six, and one, six- I was actually waiting for Tressa to respond, but I forgot. <laughs> I going to say I could see a son contributing to your death 10 years after they're born, but. Oh my God, immediately <laughs> while you're pregnant. 16 pounds? I don't see how that would be possible back then. The thing you is. Know, they, it would have killed her. No. That's the thing. Because he was very large. I mean, he was his, his nickname was Fatty, which by the way, he hated. But I think part of the story that the studios came up with about him was that he, that he weighed 16 pounds at birth. I don't necessarily believe it's true. I think that it was just one of those stories, like to talk about his size and his girth and why he's called fatty. I don't know that he necessarily was. I know that she, it's listed that she had nine children. I mean, starting in 1880 and there's a lot of confusion. I can't really tell who the siblings are, if they're half or their step. The family tree is actually kind of a mess. It lists his biological mom and his stepmom as having the same maiden name. And that's not really unheard of for a father to of many children, particularly to marry the sister of his wife after her death, if the opportunity presents itself. But I just feel like his family tree online is kind of messed up. I don't think it, it just doesn't look right. I think maybe not only if he was that big, I'm kind of doubting it. I'm kind of thinking it was his story. If he was that big, though, I'm sure the fact that she had eight other children contributed to it also. It wasn't just the fact that he was large. She had a lot of children. And before medical technology of any sort for anyone having children. So I kind of believe it was a a story made up by the studios. I don't really know. When he was around two years old, his parents moved from Kansas, where he was born, to Santa Ana, California. When he was only eight, he made his first stage appearance with Frank Bacon's Company, a small group of performers that toured California. 
Roscoe continued to perform singing and doing acrobatics and clowning all the way up until his mom died. After her death, though, his dad, who was known to treat him pretty badly anyways, the treatment got much worse. He refused to support his 11-year-old son anymore, which is amazing to us nowadays. But back then, it wasn't that weird to not... He was coming up on his teenage years. It was, he was shy of his teenage years. And his dad just decided he didn't need to support him anymore. You were old so, enough at 11 to... Back then, I mean, kids were in factories starting at five or four. Yeah. They went to work. So it wasn't that weird that his dad would have expected him to at 11. Let's go back to those times. So... <laughs> Well, now that you're not 11 anymore. Well, I know a few 11-year-olds that could uh, hit the back of any day now. Yeah, could <laughs> kids get straightened out by having a factory job. Roscoe began performing odd jobs at a local hotel where he was known to sing as he worked. An artist heard him singing and offered him a position performing in his talent show. Arbuckle turned in a less than stellar performance for the rowdy crowd, who jeered at him to stop the act. Roscoe somersaulted into the orchestra pit to avoid being physically hooked, quote unquote, off stage. And his daring response won the audience over after all. The small, accidental, and not planned moment be began what would be a career in vaudeville. In 1904, he began singing for Sid Grauman at the theater, at his theater in San Jose, making $17 a week. Now, like we think about it now, $17 a week, that people, what? Like they, it's hard to imagine, but believe it or not, $17 a week for a 17-year-old at the time was pretty good. I think $17 a week for a 17-year-old right now would be pretty exciting. $17 a week for a 17-year-old. survive, but you'd be, it'd be exciting. To get a $17, what, what would they be doing at, to get $17 a week, Kaylee? Oh, a week. They're saying an hour. <laughs> I was like, um, I was Kaylee, where do you live now? And, and that is actually really good for a 17-year-old at the time. And on top of that, he joined a stock company and got to basically tour the world, the whole entire world. So he went to China, he went to Russia, he went everywhere. So it wasn't just the money itself. It was that he wasn't with his dad anymore or his stepmom or eight other siblings, plus all the children she brought into the family. And he got to go around the world. So he, he was doing pretty well for himself already at 17. In 1908, Roscoe married a woman named Minta Durfee, an actress who starred in a lot of his films. And she, to give you like an idea, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle weighed 300 pounds. Minta, his wife, was like teeny tiny. She was only like 5'2 and 100 pounds soaking wet. So they probably looked like kind of a funky couple. But he was really funny. And people describe him as being really kind. And he didn't use his size for his comedy. Like he didn't use it to his advantage to be funny because he was a big, like huge man. He was very graceful on his feet and very acrobatic. So he did those things for, for the, for comedy as opposed to doing like the cheap comedy of being like a big fat man. In 1909, Fatty appeared in the silent film Ben's Kid for Selig Polyscope Company before joining Universal Pictures in the Keystone Comedies. And Keystone Comedies, I know Tressa is not, well, Haley wouldn't know either. The Keystone Cops or the Keystone Comedies, either one, were like the number one 
silent films out there. And it had Charlie Chaplin. It had Betty Arbuckle. It had Mabel Norman. It had Minta Durfee. It had all the, the people that would ultimately become a household name. The comedies actually did that for Betty Arbuckle. And if you've ever seen a Keystone comedy, it's, you, it's really worth a Google. Find it on YouTube. They're really funny to watch. He refused to do things like getting stuck in doorways or in chairs. And it, the way that he did his comedy with grace and dignity made him a star at the time. He was able to emote for the camera, but there's no, that's kind of a weird word, but there's another word for it. There's a level of genius in silent films. They weren't able to use words to convey feelings or a story. So their physical movements and facial expressions had to do it for them. For over three years, he worked with all the great Hollywood comedians, Mabel Norman, Charlie Chaplin, and learned from some of the greatest directors of all time. He learned and soaked it in until 1914 when he began directing his own films, beginning with short one reels, which were little short films running only about 10 minutes. And then the next year he moved up to 20 minute films. And that sounds really weird because now we just have two hour movies. But back then they would start you out on the short 10 minute reels and if people loved it and kept coming to see your films, they would move you up to 20 minute films. And then if they loved that, then they would move you up to feature films, which would be an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes. Audiences confirmed that Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was a star and made hundreds of films and lived a high glamorous Hollywood life. At the height of his career, he was signed to the biggest deal in Hollywood. It was the first multi-year contract with over a million dollars. And it doesn't sound like a gazillion dollar, like the gazillion dollar contracts today, but a con his contract was worth a thousand dollars a day plus a percentage of the profits. And the deal totaled a potential of three million dollars, which today is equivalent to 52 million. Any of the giant stars today, that was him. That was Roscoe Arbuckle back in the day. He was required. This is what's really different though. Um, movie stars now, you know, will make 52 million for a film. And they make one movie and then don't do anything for three years. Roscoe was required in that three years to make 18 pictures a year. So he worked basically every day. He didn't get like how the stars now film for three months and then have nine months off. He was working every day of the year. 1917, Roscoe from the Comique, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, but I will get emails and messages and DMs if I'm not. But I believe it's a comic film corporation with Joseph Schneck, a powerful Hollywood producer and player. By now, Roscoe was making over $1,000 a day. He had moved from two reels to trying to carry a feature by himself, writing, directing, and acting. His first feature film was The Roundup in 1920 and proved to be successful. But this time he was, by this time, he was only second to Charlie Chaplin and helped start the career of whom would become his lifelong friend, Buster Keaton. Before we get to the next part of the story, basically the true crime part, it's important to note that Fatty was known as a sweet, kind, gen genteel, even gentle man. But the thing is, we have no idea if that's true or not. The studios back then, even now, I guess, are great at hiding the bad things about their stars, even more so back then before social media, where they post their every moment and we can all sit in judgment. For them back then, they could hide all the bad stuff. But anyone who's ever talked about Roscoe Arbuckle that knew him personally has always described him as sweet, rather shy around women, quiet, very smart, sort of a genius when it came to movie making, 
but just in general, a good guy. And I'm putting that out there because it's such a big part of the story that people, the, what happened to him, it's, let me just continue. I'll just stop. The, the general consensus is that he was a good guy and it's kind of evident by the people that stood by him when it was all said and done. If you look at the story, you will see that there are definitely two sides. And as the saying goes, there's always her side, his side, and the truth. And likely the real truth lies somewhere middle, somewhere in the middle. This part of the story may or may not have anything to do with anything, but it tells how Arbuckle was feeling on Labor Day weekend in 1921. He had taken his Pierce Arrow car, which is the equivalent of the most expensive car now, to a garage to get serviced. While he was at the garage, he sat down on some acid-soaked rags by accident the acid burned through his pants and caused second-degree burns on his legs and bottom. He considered canceling the trip that they were planning that would change the trajectory of his life, and I'm sure in retrospect he wished that he had. But his friends Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishbeck convinced him to keep their plans to spend the weekend at San Francisco, partying up Hollywood style. Fishbeck even got him one of those little rubber rings to sit on so he'd be comfortable on the drive up the California coast. They checked into the beautiful and expensive St. Francis Hotel. Room 1218 for Fatty and Fred to share, room 221 for Lowell Sherman, and then they added room 1220 for their party room where they would invite people in. The friends took it upon themselves to invite some pretty girls to come hang out with them. One of the women was 26-year-old Virginia Rapp, an actress known for her piercing brown eyes and beautiful hair. She was a model and appeared in 13 films, including one with Arbuckle. Are you looking at her, Haley? Are you looking at her, Tessa? She's really a pretty lady. And she's only 26. She's a year younger than Haley is. Did you say yes? No, because I didn't want to click on my laptop and make noise. (laughs) Don't you have a phone? Virginia, R-A-P-P-E. There's some, like, provocative outfits she has on and stuff for that time frame, I would think. 1920s. Yeah. But they were kind of loosey back then, weren't they? Well, I mean... The roaring 20s? Yeah, I mean, they, they weren't as, like... People act, think uh, people act like they were so prudish and stuff like that. And no, they absolutely were not. But did you see her look up her? It's really gross. They actually put him in the paper back then. Her autopsy photos. Yeah, I saw that. Where did I see that at? I just saw her face. You could literally just put autopsy photos. And it's kind of weird, but we'll get back to that. I'll go on. On Labor Day, the story goes that Arbuckle woke up late and came to the party still dressed in his pajamas. And not much in a mood for a party. But there are so many different versions of the next events, it's hard to determine what happened when and in what order. At one point, Arbuckle claims to have returned to his room, 1219, and found Virginia in the bathroom throwing up. In one version, and it's important to note that Arbuckle himself changed some of his own testimony between the first and the third, yeah, you heard that correctly, trials. He claims in one version to have carried her to the bed And she was complaining of her stomach and he got ice to rub on her stomach as she was complaining that she was hot and her tummy hurt. So he says that he got her ice for her stomach and called the hotel doctor to check on her. Her friend, though, a woman named Maude Delmont, who had a pretty ugly and significant reputation of her own in Hollywood. She said she told the doctor that she believed that Arbuckle hadn't just nicely moved Virginia to the bed, that he had raped her. The doctor examined Virginia and gave her morphine for pain and diagnosed her with a stomach ailment compounded by alcohol, which is believed 
she had a lot of alcohol that weekend. It's rumored that Virginia had suffered from chronic urinary tract infections and that drinking alcohol made it much worse. Witnesses testified that she was known as a party girl who once she started drinking would commonly be overtaken by pain and would rip at her own clothing uncontrollably to try and ease her own pain. Although she had a rather bad reputation that included rumors of numerous abortions, her autopsy revealed that she was not pregnant and nev probably never did have an abortion. This case was so messed up. It was determined later that she may have had a very recent abortion, though, as in days before the party, and it may have played a part in her death. But again, so many different reports and really incompetent examinations. The doctor at the hotel left Virginia for two days. When she clearly wasn't getting any better, she was finally admitted to the hospital. It was San Francisco's Wakefield Sanitarium, where she died on September 9th, four days after the doctor attended her in Arbuckle's hotel room. The cause of death was determined to be a ruptured bladder and acute periontitis. Maud Delmet reported to the police that Arbuckle raped her, and the police decided that the weight of his body on top of her caused her bladder to rupture. Now, there is literally a million different opinions about this. And I read that a ruptured bladder is actually really rare, occurring most frequently from a blow to an already damaged or distended bladder. Like your bladder doesn't just rupture, like self, what is it? What is it? The word I'm thinking of? Self-combustion. That it's usually there's some kind of infection or distension of the bladder. And then when you're hit in the bladder, that's when it ruptures. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of other times that it happens, but it's not very often. And it's not so far-fetched that either scenarios could have happened. There are witnesses that say she was already drunk and already in pain and throwing herself around and tearing off her clothes. Maud, who you'll hear shortly, wasn't known for honesty, told police that it was from Arbuckle's weight that caused it. And I guess either could be true. Either way, the police believed Maud, who had gone to speak to detectives and told them that she wanted to report a murder. She told the police that Arbuckle had assaulted her friend and that she could hear Virginia screaming violently and that she and an actress, Zay Proven, and another actress, Alice Blake, tried to break the door down. She went on to repeat the same to all the newspapers, adding that she had to kick the door to get Arbuckle to answer. And then when he finally did and let the women in, Virginia's clothing was torn and she was screaming in agony saying, he did this to me. She added that Arbuckle looked at her and told, shut her up or I'll throw her out the window. Then he returned to his party and danced the night away while poor Virginia lay dying. They arrested Arbuckle on September 17th, basically based on what Dalmont told them. During a press conference, Virginia's manager, a man named Al Semeniger, publicly accused Roscoe of using a piece of ice to rape Virginia. Now, remember a few minutes ago when I told you that he, in his testimony, he said that he had gotten ice to rub on her stomach. So ice was part of the story. This is, again, the he said, she said, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. There was ice somehow involved. Her manager claimed that he basically raped her with a jagged piece of ice, and the newspapers ran with it. The only thing is, is that when the newspapers, when they finally printed it, or when they, it got, you know, from the manager's mouth to the reporter's ears to the desk of whoever wrote the story... The piece of ice became a bottle of champagne or a Coke bottle, but it initially started with a piece of ice. It all really became a sick, twisted game of telephone. Arbuckle spent three weeks in jail before bailing out. His trial was a media event with the press printing more and more centralized stories about he and some about her. They basically dragged them both through the mud. In some stories, she was 
loose, a loose woman who had abortions and was always drinking and was sick all the time. And then he was the glamorous Hollywood millionaire who did whatever he wanted to whatever woman he wanted. So they both basically got dragged through the mud. The Hearst papers portrayed Arbuckle as a monster, and Hearst was known to brag about how much money his papers made during that first and second trial. Not one much for accurate or truthful reporting, the Hearst papers clamped down hard on anything sensational or outlandish during the entire time. Morality groups started to call for the death penalty for Arbuckle before even hearing any of the evidence. A media and public circus had not been seen like this in regards to Hollywood yet. It wasn't the only case to cause a sensation, and it certainly wouldn't be Hollywood's last, but it was the first of this magnitude. The prosecutor was the city's district attorney, who may or may not have other ambitions to get the case tried in one. His name was Matthew Brady, and he had ambitions for running for California state governor. A case like this handed to him would make him a star, in what counts more than being a star in Hollywood at the time. He held numerous press conferences, making outrageous statements of Roscoe's guilt before the trial even started. There's even some evidence that he coerced certain witnesses to make false statements, anything to further his agenda to win at all costs. He rallied all of the women's morality groups and church groups to call for Arbuckle's blood, although it took very little rallying. Hearst newspapers, with headlines like Booze Fest Kills Actress, helped with the frenzy. Maud Delmont, the quote-unquote friend of Virginia, whose story changed many times over and would be considered an unreliable witness under any circumstances, was used in the public for the drama of her statements rather than the honesty of them in the indictment hearing. Delmont had an extensive criminal record for extortion and fraud, and her inconsistent statements and outright lies forced the prosecutors to admit, omit her from the witness list in all three of the trials. And on September 7th, two days before Rapp's death, she had sent telegrams to two of her friends, which read, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here. We have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here, chance to make some money out of him. During the indictment phase, the judge determined that there was no evidence of Arbuckle raping Virginia. The charge against him was dropped from the original prosecution's plans of the death penalty all the way down to manslaughter, an obviously lesser charge, no doubt increasing the frenzy of the morality groups who wanted nothing less than his head on a stick. Arbuckle spent nearly three weeks in jail after his arrest. His first trial, and yes, I said first, in fact, the first of three trials, began on November 14, 1921 in San Francisco. His wife, although estranged at the time, believed her husband when he said he didn't do anything. There was such anger and rage against Arbuckle between Brady's and Maud Delmont's statements that when his wife, Minta, showed up at the courthouse to support him, she was actually shot at by someone outside when she entered the building. Luckily, it didn't hit her. The trial lasted until December 4th, 1921. The Women's Vigilance Committee had reserved a block of seats in the front row. Brady presented a number of witnesses, none of them Maud Delmont. He put on the stand a woman named Betty Campbell from the party who claimed to have seen Arbuckle dancing and smiling after poor Virginia was injured, although she later claimed that Brady threatened her with perjury if she didn't testify. His witnesses also included a local criminologist, a Dr. Edward Heinrich, who claimed that fingerprints on the door was Arbuckle's and that it appeared that Virginia had tried to flee and Arbuckle laid his hand over her, stopping her from leaving. But a maid came forward later that said she had actually cleaned the room before they had even investigated it, 
making it unlikely that there were any clear fingerprints, let alone enough to say it was specifically Arbuckle's over Virginia's. The hotel doctor who had treated her said that an external force seemed to have damaged her bladder. But during cross-examination, he admitted that Virginia never, during or after the exams, said anything about Arbuckle doing anything to her. Arbuckle himself was put on the stand, and he remained unflustered during his testimony and cross-examination. He claimed that Virginia had come to room 1220 around noon, and that sometime later he went to his room 1219 to change clothes to drive a friend to town. When he entered, Virginia was in the bathroom throwing up. He picked her up, carried her to the room, and laid her on the bed. He then went and grabbed a couple of people to help him, and when they entered the room, she was tearing out her clothes and going into convulsions. They put her in a cold bath to calm her down. Arbuckle and his friend, Fishbach, then went to their other rooms and called the hotel manager and the hotel doctor. They assumed she would be fine in their care and sleep it off. Fishbach went back to the party, and Arbuckle drove his friend into town. Arbuckle was grilled by Brady, but Arbuckle maintained that he never took advantage of Virginia or any woman in his life. The defense brought in 18 different doctors, all of whom testified that Virginia had specific illnesses that could have contributed to her death. The defense rested their case on December 4th. Five days later, the jury returned deadlocked with a 10-2 non-guilty verdict and a mistrial was declared. One woman on the jury told the other jurors that she would never say not guilty and actually refused to look at any evidence that was presented to them. She had made up her mind before the trial even started. So here he is, 10 to 2, not guilty, and then they called it a mistrial. So back in 1921, what did they do? They tried him again. They did, the second trial. That started on January 11th. The second trial that started on January 11th, 1922, with a new jury, but the same judge. The same evidence was presented again without Delmont, Maud Delmont, who had started this in the first place. Like, it seems so weird to me that the woman who went to the police and accused him of murder is not, uh, not being put on the witness stand. Like, that seems so crazy to me. She's the one who started the whole thing. But in this trial, Zay Prevon, the one that I talked about earlier, the party goer who had testified against Arbuckle in the first trial, testified this time that Brady had forced her to lie. And that, and then another um, witness that they called, a studio security guard, he had testified that Arbuckle at one time at the studio had tried to bribe him into letting him into Virginia's dressing room, pretending like he was going to play a joke on her. And he was trying to convey that Arbuckle had always had the hots for Virginia. And was, but he was found to be an ex-convict who was currently being charged for sexually assaulting an eight-year-old and was testifying against Arbuckle in exchange for a sentence reduction. In this trial, Virginia was under fire with witnesses confirming her history of promiscuity and heavy drinking. The criminologist from the first trial admitted that the fingerprinting that he had testified had been faked, and this time Arbuckle did not testify. The jury deliberated again for five days and 40 hours. But they deadlocked again. The difference is this time it was 10 to 2 in favor of conviction and it resulted in a mistrial again. So, what they do this time? Try them again. Was it a mistrial or a hung jury? If a jury becomes hopelessly deadlocked over a case and remains unable to reach a consensus, the judge may choose to declare a mistrial. After a mistrial has been declared, the prosecution must decide whether they intend to pursue the case or drop it. Prosecutors may drop a case if they believe a second trial will end in an acquittal or a hung jury. 
if the prosecutor does decide to pursue the case, he or she must say so before a judge so that the new trial date can be set and a second jury can be impaneled. Double jeopardy then. Double jeopardy means that they can they said not guilty. And then so they say you they say you're not guilty and then you walk outside the courthouse and admit to doing the crime, they cannot try you again. Because you were already tried for that crime. So it says the rule was put into place to prevent prosecutors from repeatedly leveling the same charge against an individual. So how do retrials get around the double jeopardy clause? In a sense, they don't. Since the first case was never decided, either in guilt or innocence, prosecutors may choose to pursue the case until it reaches its conclusion. If that happens and the defendant is acquitted, Prosecutors may not bring the same charges against a defendant again. So in essence, the aim of a retrial is to definitively conclude the original proceedings. So is the third time a charm. By now, all of Arbuckle's films have been banned and public opinion was in. Delmont was touring, literally going on tours with people paying to see her as, quote, unquote, the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle lecturing to morality groups about the evils of Hollywood. The trial started on March 13, 1922. This time, Arbuckle's defense didn't monkey around. They tore apart the witness statements and cross-examined each of the prosecution witnesses within an inch of their lives. They pointed out every single flaw in the prosecution's case. This time, Arbuckle took the stand again. And although his story changed here and there, he still maintained his innocence. This jury this time returned within six minutes with a unanimous not guilty verdict. They said five out of the six minutes was used to write an apology to Ar Arbuckle, which read, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration. Under the evidence, for there was not the slightest proof abduced to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. Later, some experts claim that Virginia's bladder was damaged from a recent abortion, like I said earlier, although other experts said there was no evidence she was ever even pregnant. Apparently, her organs had been destroyed and would no longer be available for any technological advances that came along. Arbuckle was convicted of one count of violating the Volstead Act and fined $500 for drinking of alcohol at his party. Arbuckle lost everything from all three trials. He had to sell his houses and his cars to pay his lawyers and he was banned from the only living he knew how to do. The million-dollar contractor was gone, and no apology from any jury or any others was going to lighten his reputation in the public's opinion. Will Hayes of the Hollywood Censor Board banned Arbuckle for life from working in the industry as a poor example of morals. Public pressure from those who had believed in Arbuckle and the justice system forced Hayes to lift the ban a year later, but it was too late. His friend Buster Keaton came to his rescue, a star in his own right now, hired Arbuckle to direct and write films under the name of William Goodrich, his dad's name. But Roscoe was not the same. An actress who worked for him later recalled he had become a shell of the man he once was. After he and Minta's divorce, they actually married each other one more time and divorced again, and he married one more time after that. 
Ten years later, he made a comeback and was hired by Warner Brothers to star in his own movies again under his own name. That night, he went out to celebrate with friends, telling them it was the best day of his life. He later had a heart attack and died in his sleep. He was only 46 years old. No one really knows what happened that day in that hotel room long ago. Roscoe Coughlin Arbuckle died, feeling somewhat vindicated. And honestly, I want to believe he didn't do anything that contributed to her death. The people who were friends with him stayed friends with him despite threats from studios for doing so. But what about the victim in the story? I guess if Arbuckle was innocent of any wrongdoing, you could say there were two victims. One, a young girl who lost her life, whether she was a victim of a violent rape by a millionaire star or by her own undoing. No one will ever know. Her name was dragged through the dirt over and over again by defense attorneys and the public for almost exactly the last hundred years. People still online argue about whether Virginia was a victim of Fatty Arbuckle or whether Fatty Arbuckle was a victim of the Hollywood, basically. Yeah. And to me, I feel like they were both victims. She died. She didn't get to go live and he didn't get to do anything he wanted to do ever again. And like they're, I don't know. I want to believe he didn't do it. Her name has been dragged through the dirt over and over again by defense attorneys and the public for almost exactly the last hundred years. Has she ever got to rest in peace? It's not likely. She died a painful death and wasn't even allowed to rest in peace. It's not likely. She died a painful death and wasn't even allowed to rest in peace and still doesn't today. If you ask the people who have ever spent time at the Hollywood Memorial Cemetery where she's buried, right, Tressa? Yeah, so weirdly, I found that Virginia, too, lost her mom at the age of 10 or 11, just like Arbuckle. Virginia was sent to live with her grandmother, and at the age of 14, she ran away to Hollywood to become a star. What info I found is a bit sketchy, but one site said she became engaged to a man named Robert Moskovit, a dress designer, but he died in a streetcar crash, leaving her all alone. Luckily, For her, by 1917, while modeling, she was hired to work in movies and met Henry Lehrman, who she would also become engaged to. She had finally found love and stardom. No one to this day knows that the rumors about Virginia's promiscuity are true, but no one can imagine she had a peaceful transition into the afterlife. Witnesses at the Hollywood Memorial Park have reported feeling feelings of icy cold air around her grave, and some have even seen her crying at the water's edge. Many have also claimed to hear a woman sobbing in the night. Henry, her fiancé, is buried right next to her and visited her grave often over the next 20-something years until his death in 1946. And some claim he is still doing just that. Witnesses have claimed to see him standing, sobbing over the grave of his love, Virginia. Haley, do you remember going there? Yeah. You remember actually going to Virginia Rapp's grave? I think so. That was where they were recording, like trying to get um, EVPs that night that we were there. Yeah. It actually is, weirdly enough, it is really cold by her grave. I can't explain it. There's a lot of trees and it is by the water, but it's colder than it is other places in the cemetery. And I don't. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it's just because of the direction it faces or something, but... I feel like the last time we talked about this cemetery, I said the same thing. What? Which would have been three years ago now, probably. Yeah. Next summer, please take me there. Why does it have to be during the summer? So it's warm at night? No. Well, they close at night. You can't be walking around in there at night anyways. We only were in there at night because we were part of an event. Oh. You can go during the day. It's amazing. 
they have Judy Garland. There's a Judy Garland thing there. Um, Clifton Webb haunts it. Rudolph Valentino. Uh, there's a really sad, I mean, it's kind of sad, but there's a monument to um, Hattie McDaniel, who was in Gone with the Wind. She wasn't allowed to be buried there because she was African-American. And so the most recent owners obviously could do nothing about what happened a hundred years ago. So they did a monument to her. It still makes me sad. I mean, the monument is a nice thought, but she really wanted to be buried there with all the other stars. And it's literally like, I can't even describe it. The back wall of Hollywood Memorial Cemetery is the back wall of Paramount Studios. And it's like the oldest part of the studios right there. So it's, it's a cool cemetery. It's really pretty, to be honest. It's very beautiful. And um, they have the most amazing Day of the Dead celebration every year. This year it was on a Sunday. So I didn't want to go to Hollywood and drive back and no one else wanted to go with me. But it's actually really beautiful. But I am here to tell you that the area around her gravesite is actually colder than most areas in that cemetery for some weird reason. And it makes me sad to think that she would still be there. Like she already had a really rough life that she ran away. She lived with her grandmother, you know what I mean? And then her boyfriend got killed in a, in a streetcar accident. And then she's still like roaming the cemetery. years later. Yeah. That's so sad. So it was exactly 100. We just passed the 100 year. It happened on Labor Day weekend, mm-hmm. 1921. So it's exactly 100 years. And it's just sad to think. And there's, I, like I was saying yesterday, I was when I was researching this story, there are Facebook pages dedicated to both of them. There are people that still 100% argue this case, which is so ridiculous to me. I don't want to believe that he did it. I just don't. And maybe because I was so enamored of him when I was a child, I loved watching his movies. But I don't want her to have died either. And I think that a lot of people like talk about how great he was and then say that she was promiscuous and all that stuff. It's sort of like victim shaming. If he did rape her, it is victim shaming. Like it's the whole thing is just so incredibly sad. And the way things were investigated a hundred years ago and the way People, I mean, I guess people don't respond the same way. They still, it's still cancel culture. That's what he went through. But either way, two people, it sucked for two people. Like neither one of them came home that Labor Day weekend, technically, because his life was never the same and she died. So no further comments? No, unless you want to tell me what to say. No. You don't have any opinions? No. <laughs> no. You'll be happy to know the next one is going to be a missing person, but it's a solved case. Do you hate that? No. How it's long ago? Missing. Um, 1980, but it was just solved in the 2000s, like recently. Do mm-hmm. DNA. So our next story is going to be... We're, this is our first story back after our Halloween episodes, which I got carried away and took them into November because I had so many great opportunities this year to talk to people at haunted locations. And then like Brandon and Mustafa, who were so gracious, like over and over again, telling me story after story and Charles. And I dragged out the Halloween stuff for a little bit longer just because we had so many opportunities. But we are 
jumping right into all of our jumping right back into all of our true crime stuff because we have a list of stories that we can do and the Orange County um Bob tapped with the Orange County Sheriff said I can pick any story that we want to do next with him so we are jumping right back into our true crime stuff cannot Chessa, wait Chessa, can't so wait to listen well Chessa you can come back anytime see how easy this was uh, yeah Kind of. <laughs> it, I it's just easier. Have so much going on in my life. But I mean, that it's you can. I'll send you the list of all the shows that we're recording, and you can pick and choose which one you want to participate in. It's a little different recording remotely that you can't see and interact a little bit more. It's a little bit different, but you but get, it's gone a lot faster. Yeah, and you get used to it a little bit too. You'll get used to like when you can jump in and when you can't. Yeah. And like maybe we can like figure out a way to do like raise your hand or something. I don't know. Okay, I'm gonna record the ending really quick. Ready? Ready. The death of Virginia Rapp and the subsequent trials of Roscoe Arbuckle are the stuff of legend now. No one is alive that was there that Labor Day weekend in nineteen twenty one, and no one knows who even told the truth back when they were alive. The only thing remaining is the fact that two people lost their lives that weekend. Virginia literally and Roscoe the life he had known and worked so hard for. It was a tragedy, plain and simple, a tragedy that ended two people's lives. For more information on Virginia Rapp or Roscoe Arbuckle, visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for links to books and more. Thanks, Tressa. Thanks, Haley. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Visit our website at hauntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode, links to our Patreon page, and all of our social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat. I'm Haley. Remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.